Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have with us for the hour today Arthur Brooks, who's president of the American Enterprise Institute. He was on the Utah State University campus recently to give a public lecture called Making a Moral Case for Free Enterprise. His latest book is The Road to Freedom, How to Win the Fight for Free Enterprise. Arthur Brooks, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Appreciate uh, you being with us. We'll get to talking a little later in the program about uh, the spiraling uh, costs in higher education. Mm -hmm. You wrote a very interesting op-ed piece in the New York Times recently uh, talking about your education and uh, how you essentially came out with what they're calling the 10KBA. Right. Uh, but uh, first, uh, maybe get into some of your, your bio. You started off as a musician? That's right. I, uh, I left college when I was 19. I dropped out or <clears throat> kicked out. You know, these are splitting hairs. <clears throat> Fine line between the two. And I spent 10 years uh, as a professional musician. So um, I traveled around the United States and around Europe and ultimately wound up in the Barcelona Symphony playing the French horn. Uh, so I have a pretty non-traditional background and ended up going back to college when I was in my late 20s. And uh, what was the impetus to go back to college? I was interested in doing some different things. Having spent a long time as a professional musician, I found I was interested in things that I wasn't seeing enough of and I needed to study a little bit more. I come from a family of academics and artists and uh, <clears throat> had been encouraged by my parents for a long time to, to look for higher ed. The interesting thing is by the, when I went back to college, my parents were actually not very supportive because I was leaving the music business and I had established myself and started a family. So they were a little worried about that, but all's well that ends well. So that's kind of opposite of what uh, maybe parents would usually do, you know, go, go become a lawyer. Uh, you were you're leaving life as a musician. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So uh, <clears throat> I remember when I called my dad to say I was going to leave the music business and go back to college, you know, drop out of music and go go to college and get a degree. And, and he said, you can't do that. <laughs> he said, why do you want to do that? I mean, you've started a family. And I said, because I'm not happy. And there's this long silence on the phone. And finally he says, so so what makes you so special? <laughs> uh, so maybe we can bring this in right there because it fits in your, your biography as we're going along with with this. Uh, your op-ed piece talks about the this idea that's been put forward by Bill Gates and some others. Uh, 10KBA, the, a, a way to address uh, just spiraling costs in, uh, in higher education. So you went to uh, someplace called Thomas Edison State College? Yeah, that was, I didn't actually go there. When, when I was in my <clears throat> late 20s and I was still on the road as a musician, I was looking for a way as an adult learner, somebody who didn't have time to actually go to college, to get college courses. And there were three or four of them around the United States that were accredited schools that would bank college credits. And you'd go to, you'd take correspondence courses. It wasn't online in those days. It was the early 90s. <clears throat> and you'd, you'd bank the credits through these through this uh, New Jersey State College. I did actually a bunch of my coursework at Brigham Young, of all places, which has a fantastic correspondence catalog. And you know, I took courses in economics and math and political science and this kind of thing. And I banked the credits through this place in New Jersey and got my whole bachelor's degree for about $10,000 in today's dollars. So places like BYU and I think University of Wyoming and University of Washington, Washington. probably 15 schools around the United States is where I did my coursework. And it was, you know, it's a little harder when you don't have instructors to teach you calculus. But when you're an adult learner and you have a lot of motivation to do it, you can actually get it done. And I guess the basic point is not that everybody needs to do this. On the contrary, I would just assume that my own kids uh, go to college traditionally because it's easier and it's it's, it's optimal for them. But we need more options for more people to get more education. Too many people are being left behind. I think it's evident to everybody who's listening to us today that our, the opportunity society is fraying around the edges and we have a lot of, of opportunity inequality in this country. I'm a lot less w- 
less worried about income inequality, but opportunity equality inequality bothers me a lot, and it should bother us all because we're finding that the poor are being socioeconomically left behind. And so we need more opportunities for people to 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 find. Uh, their place in the modern economy. And that means more ways for entrepreneurial ways for people to get their education, get their training, to get their skills in ways that meets their passions. And so what I did was just one way to do it. We need more good, innovative thinking so that we can serve more people and left fewer people behind with our elitist, expensive, uh, bubble-ridden higher ed economy. Mm. And well, no, we you know, see the studies where uh, if you get a high school degree, that leads you to uh, you know, a, a higher curve in uh, lifetime earnings, higher education, you know, mm-hmm. still applies. And yet it's becoming uh, more and more expensive. The downside, I suppose, would be, um, and you put bring this up in your op-ed piece, differential, this is a wide differential uh, in perception anyway, between Harvard and Thomas Edison State College. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you point, rightly point out in your piece that uh, didn't hurt you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you ended up as president of American Enterprise Institute, uh, professor at Syracuse, right? right. Uh, but um, maybe you're the exception. I don't know. It, it is, there, there is a disparity in at least the prestige, the perception from employers, right? For sure. Now, of course, there's a, a big difference between going to Thomas Edison State by correspondence and going to Harvard University or, or Brigham Young or another elite school. But the problem is that today the, the choices are – traditional universities and zero universities. And so what we're trying to do is to fill in these gaps. It's okay that there's differentiation in quality and differentiation in price. We just want more choices. <laughs> it's true that I'm an outlier, but we're a nation of outliers. This is the American spirit. We're all different. We all have different needs. And the good thing about free enterprise and about entrepreneurship is it is it actually caters to outliers as opposed to having a one-size-fits-all statist kind of elitist system that we've got uh, increasingly right now that's great for, for serving the upper middle class and, and wealthy people in this country and just really terrible at serving people who have traditionally been left behind and need new kinds of opportunities. We don't need to take poor people and hammer them into Harvard. We need to take all different kinds of people from different stations in life with different passions and skills and goals and ambitions and give them opportunities to develop themselves uh, as they see fit and as serves them best. So what would you suggest then? This is it's an attractive idea, 10K BA. It's kind of a nice uh, nice goal. Come out, and you, you figured out that in dollars in the year that you graduated that you essentially had a, a 10K BA. This is what people are advocating. So what sorts of opportunities for people would you advocate? Well, I think that the, probably the best systems in higher ed right now to serve more people really cost-effectively would be to shove more uh, AP education into, into public high schools, have more people starting out in community colleges, which are fantastic. We need to be taking community college much more seriously and having more career opportunities that happen in the first two years of a college curriculum that's more practical. And for those that really want to go on to the four-year degrees, have more opportunities for people feeding through the the two-year community colleges, which are cheap, cost-effective, and they can be really practical and high quality into uh, state schools that can uh, feed on in the third and fourth year. So that's kind of the best formula that we've got so far. But again, this should be the realm of entrepreneurs, for-profit entrepreneurs, uh, non-profit entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, people who are involved in churches, uh, and and last but not least, people involved in government trying to find new ways to serve citizens as opposed to the current system, which is going to an unsustainable bubble, and it's saddling a whole generation with terrible debt. What do you think the future is as you as you look out there? You mentioned for-profits. They've had kind of a, long, uh, a bad run here in the last couple of years with some, some bad publicity. Um, 
Some people come out of those systems uh, having good good experience as well. Do you do you think it's going to be more state colleges, more the private institutions? Is it gonna is gonna be a, a bigger slice of the pie being the for profits, uh, I think. Well, that, it really depends. We have a great guy at AEI, at the American Enterprise Institute. We have uh, a researcher, a guy named Andrew Kelly, finished his PhD at uh, UC Berkeley, but does work on the future of higher education. So, if folks listening to us go to AEI.org. They'll find Andrew Kelly's work on exactly the stuff that we're talking about. He's the expert, um, and I, I read his stuff, so I'm I'm reporting on on the work that our scholars do. And <clears throat> the, one of the big problems is that the the government today is implacably hostile toward for-profit providers of education. And a lot of people listening to us today, they're, they're going to be shaking their heads going, yeah, for-profit providers of higher ed. That, that can't happen. Well, why not? I mean, why do we care about organizational form? Why do we care where, where money goes? And in, in fact, the entrepreneurial economy has always been really good at sorting out the services that people need in the most cost-effective way. We have a non-consumer-focused higher ed economy at this point that doesn't serve people to teach them what they need. And you know, anybody who doesn't believe that, just talk to a parent who spends $45,000 a year all in to send his kid to, to, to school and the kid is studying you know, something that's not going to find him a job. There's a lot of frustration out there among um, parents and, and kids and everybody else. So depending on the, the government's orientation toward real entrepreneurship in the sector, we're going to find what the solutions actually might be. And, and I, I don't know what those are going to be, but I do know that under the current path, we're going to see a huge bubble. Like the housing bubble that led to the current financial crisis, we're moving toward a higher ed bubble that could threaten the stability and the solvency of up to 25% of educations of higher learning. Um, Any college president who's listening to us today has got to be thinking five years from now when there is the crisis, how am I going to be the object of a flight to value as opposed to being the kind of place that people are running away from? And uh, my next question will get us sort of into some of the issues you raise in your your, uh, latest book. Um, Some would argue that uh, you have uh, government run universities, you know, state colleges. Right. We're, we're, we're talking in a facility run by a state college here. Uh, they will say that um, there are some economies of scale and of learning and of, um, of value that we all pool our resources together, funnel that through government, and we can, and we can provide some advantages in our educational system that the for-profits uh, aren't going to be able to do. In in fact, there are some public good elements to public education, particularly in the areas of research. Uh, and when it comes to land-grant universities, we're sitting here at Utah State University, fantastic land-grant school, their great reputation in uh, environmental science and agricultural sciences, etc. Those were formed precisely because they thought that knowledge in these areas was a public good and it was something that the community should come together to support. I mean, this is what every community has the right to decide. And I'm not against those things at all. But the truth of the matter is we have something like 4,500 colleges and universities in this country. We have a, a way, way, way beyond the number that actually we need to serve student needs per se. And that's what leads to a bubble. How is it being fueled? The answer is that the federal government is taking over the student loan markets. Uh, they're driving down the cost of student loans to unsustainably low levels, just like they did in the housing markets to get everybody into a house because of this idea, this bureaucratic ideal that everybody's got to be a college grad. Everybody's got to have a college education. So the government takes over student loans, forces more money onto students or forces more money into the market. That, of course, leads directly to bidding up the cost of tuition. And it's going to hit a bubble. People are going to start to default and stop going to these colleges. And that's what's going to lead to the crisis. Who is it going to hurt? 
something like a thousand colleges and universities are going to have an existential crisis. That's no good. That's that's the real kind of crisis that we face, and that goes beyond uh, any kind of partisan politics. We're talking with uh, Arthur Brooks, who's president of the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, he gave a, a lecture recently for the uh, Project on Liberty and American Constitutionalism at Utah State University. Uh, the lecture was at USU, and it was called Making a Moral Case for Free Enterprise. And uh, his latest book is The Road to Freedom, How to Win the Fight for Free Enterprise. Arthur Brooks is a, a former professional musician, uh, went to college, as, as we said, uh, with, with some innovative uh, methods. And uh, I, I think uh, with, for your graduate work, you, you did kind of, kind of more traditional right? I did. Yeah. I, I got a master's degree in economics at the University of Florida. Then I went to the Rand Graduate School in Los Angeles for my Ph.D. We're going to talk more with Arthur Brooks following a brief break. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by the Child and Family Support Center of Cache County, racing in support of Utah families this Saturday in Wellsville with the Utah Family Fun Run and Kids Arts Festival. Registration is online at childandfamilysupportcenter.org. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu slash hr. Stress is what you feel when you have to handle more than you are used to. When you are stressed, your body responds as though you are in danger. It makes hormones that speed up your heart, make you breathe faster, and give you a burst of energy. This is called the fight-or-flight stress response. Stress is normal, but if it happens too often or lasts too long, it can have bad effects. It can be linked to headaches, upset stomach, back pain, and trouble sleeping. It can weaken your immune system, making it harder to fight off disease. You probably can't delete all stress from your life, but you can get better at managing your stress. Start a stress journal, ask for help when you need it, do some deep breathing exercises, and get some exercise. Find something that works for you and enjoy this life you've been given. This is Angela Helm for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. Back with Arthur Brooks, president of American Enterprise Institute, who gave a lecture recently on the Utah State University campus making a moral case for free enterprise. Uh, he, he His latest book is The Road to Freedom, uh, How to Win the Fight for Free Enterprise. Arthur Brooks, uh, former professor at uh, Syracuse, and for a few years now, since 2009, was it? Yeah, beginning of 2009, four and a half years. Four and a half years, president of American Enterprise Institute. We're on tape in this part of the program, so you can comment via our uh, email, upraxis at gmail.com, or on our website, upr.org. So let's uh, move your biography forward. Uh, You then got interested, I believe, in your graduate studies, uh, studying uh, behavioral economics? That's right. one of the things that I found was that the parts, as an economist, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in all the traditional things economists look into, but the, the key things were, as far as I'm concerned, were not the what of the economy, but the why. Why do we do what we do and what motivates us to make particular economic decisions? What what actually drives our happiness? We're trying to be happier people is, is, is what it comes down to. So I started studying something that was really paradoxical for economists, which was philanthropy and charitable giving. My main area of research was was charity, as a matter of fact. My first commercial book was a book about who's giving in America and who's not and what's the difference and why. Uh, part of that was because these kinds of transactions are so strange for economists. I mean, you're giving money to something, but what you get back is hard to define. It's 
a sense of altruism. It's warm glow. It's somebody else doing well. And this is something that doesn't fit into economic models very well. And that led me to do work on the economics of happiness per se. And so I've studied a lot of non-traditional topics because I'm interested in what makes people tick. Inter- the intersection between an economics, politics, culture, that's, that is a very interesting uh, intersection. Tell me a bit about this, um, this idea of gross national happiness. Yeah. That's a fascinating idea. Well, it's you know, the I, I called the book "Gross National Happiness." It's actually a takeoff on a a measure from the tiny Himalayan kingdom of Bhutan, which decided it was not going to measure gross national product or gross domestic product, but rather gross national happiness. It was going to measure the happiness of its people and try to maximize those measures. Now, when a government decides it's going to impose programs to make its citizens happier, I start getting real nervous because I I've seen a lot of data dating back a long time. The bureaucrats are not so great at doing it. People are much better when they're in a free society uh, to pursue the institutions of true happiness. And and basically, there are four things. Four things, uh, I guess, everybody, I'll give everybody a chance to grab their pencils that's listening to us. The data say four things bring true human happiness. We practice them in abundance, and we have kind of a diversified life portfolio. Our spiritual lives, our family lives, our friendships, and our work, work as a calling. That's really important that we don't work just for money, but we work for something that creates value in our lives and serve serves other people. We really honestly believe that. So between faith, family, friends, and work, this is the portfolio to a to a happy life, as it turns out. And, and governments are just not really good at that. On the contrary, most government policy militates against these things. We find um, the idea of community life and family life, which is greatly attenuated by, by it's hampered by a lot of public policy, particularly in inner city communities. It's been terrible what's happened. You find uh, that work life has been really messed up by policies that that weaken the relationship that people have to the workforce. And and I understand why. I'm I'm not unsympathetic. I'm just saying that these are the kinds of things that drive happiness down as opposed to up. Government's better at making us unhappy than it is at making us happy as an empirical matter. So uh, I'm more interested in setting people free to make the right decisions. And you talk about uh, this idea of sacrifice, don't you? If you if you have to work really hard for something, then you have greater satisfaction coming out at the end. One example I believe you give is is parenthood. Yeah, that's right. Um, <clears throat> the key thing in life is a belief that you have succeeded, and succeeding means you're creating value uh, in your life and the lives of other people. But it has to be earned. So a, a common phrase that we use is earned success. That's not earning money. Money is just a an outward manifestation of something that you do. Um, you can have the coin of the realm in any area that you want. You can accumulate the outward signs of your earned success, whether it be in successful kids or beautiful art or a, a more peaceful world or a cleaner environment. And I've worked with social entrepreneurs who've done all of those things. And it's, I think, deeply important. Making money is just one measure among many. But earned success is the key, and earned means sacrifice. When you work for something and you see the fruits of your labor, there's just nothing more satisfying than that, whether it be you know working truly hard on having great kids and being a wonderful parent or seeing the payoff to what's going on in your church or your community group or your charity. Uh, A lot of people listening to us I know are deeply concerned with the environment. Seeing earned success in that realm means working on something and changing people's minds as a a cultural matter. These are the things that bring true satisfaction. So uh, moving ahead then to your your latest two books, The Battle, How the Fight Between Free Enterprise and Big Government Will Shape America's Future, and then that leads to The Road to Freedom, How to Win the Fight for uh, Free Enterprise. You outline, I think, I believe, three Three elements in in free enterprise. First of all, and I want to, to go back and take the threads that we have been talking about forward, but I know some have uh, criticized your book as saying that we didn't know free enterprise needed 
um, defending. Well, <clears throat> that's part of the problem. <laughs> if free enterprise, see, free enterprise and, and, and free markets are great at correcting themselves. Uh, market signals are terrific for making markets turn themselves around. The, the financial crisis was not an example of market failure. It was an example of market success through bad public policy and, and malfeasance and greed on Wall Street and in the business community. We had, we had destroyed markets effectively, and markets struck back. I mean, a lot of us paid for it and it's created a lot of unhappiness. But that's an example of markets correcting themselves. The problem is markets are terrible at defending themselves. They need defenders. They need people who stand up and say, hey, you know, free enterprise, maximizing liberty, increasing individual opportunity, entrepreneurship. These are the institutions that give the most people the best life. They're the essence of the reason that uh, my ancestors and yours came to this country. I mean, no, nobody, my grandparents were not on a boat saying, can't wait to get to America for a better system of forced income redistribution. They said, I want to start a farm, which they did in South Dakota. And I'm sure your family's got the same, you know, a similar kind of story. Um, that's the essence of the American experience, which is building our own lives. That's what we, in, in my view, what we really need to fight for. The, the free enterprise economy, the free enterprise society is one that needs people who say, this is a moral imperative. This is not an economic alternative. And that, that's what a lot of my work is trying to do, really in a post-partisan way. I mean, this tends to sound like it's you know, conservative or Republican or something, but it, I don't want it to be. I want it to be about what our hearts really want for ourselves and for our children. I want to respond to um, uh, do a follow up on on your example of the the market crash uh, because I know uh, some of our listeners are reaching for the phone right now. By the way, we're on tape, um, so uh, respond by email upraxis at gmail dot com or on our website upr dot org. Uh, some would say no, you argue that this is the market correcting itself. Right. Others would argue no. We need more government regulation. These are these are very bad actors who are selling instruments that uh, they knew people would not understand in, in one one. Uh, part of that, uh, what happened, um, and that uh, a lot of the people who perpetrated this, it appears, got off scot-free, while a lot of people, as you pointed out, were hurt. Yeah, that's a, and those, those points are actually true. Uh, <clears throat> what happened in the market, the, the, the crash, the, 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 the story in a nutshell of the financial crisis of 2007 through 2009 was that we, it started off with terrible government policy. And and I promise I will get to private sector malfeasance in just a second. So uh, before we get a whole a lot of emails saying that I'm leaving out that part of the story, um, government housing policy basically said everybody's got to sit in the house. I mean, it's all communities will be better if everybody owns their house. Now that's classic social engineering. It's just one size fits all policy. And the way that they tried to to instantiate that policy was through government means, through government sponsored enterprises, the companies we've all heard about, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac saying that they were going to buy mortgages on the secondary market. And and it didn't really matter if the mortgages were to people who had no credit, people who had lousy credit, people who had gone bankrupt, people who had no visible sources of income. Make everybody a mortgage and we'll buy them. Of course, they bought all those mortgages, trillions and trillions of dollars in these mortgages. They sliced them up. They sold them up in something called mortgage-backed securities. Uh, and when they started doing this, of course, Wall Street – uh, bankers and uh, investment houses started to do it as well. Is it, hey, good enough for the U.S. government, good enough for us. And pretty soon everybody was in this market of buying and selling terrible mortgages, slicing them up so you couldn't even figure out how risky they were. Uh, this led to this massive housing bubble, really fueled by terrible housing policy uh, from the government, and then fueled even more by greed and stupidity and malfeasance and short-sightedness from from the private sector, which was creating a market failure, not a market success. 
all the whole thing melted down and the gov- and the market actually struck back. The market says we're going to pop the bubble, we're going to get back into an equilibrium. Houses are overpriced. What should the price of houses be? Well, the market was going to decide. So what happened basically is the markets failed because of the government. This is the really shocking thing. Governments are supposed to help when markets are failing to make them come back into equilibrium. When you've got you know, things like corruption and crime and pollution, and that, that's when government's monopoly, that's when government's supposed to act. The government's not supposed to create these problems. Uh, so it, the weirdest, most paradoxical thing is markets were failing because of the government. The free market actually solved market failure. And here's the saddest thing of all. The people who got hurt were the very people who didn't do the crimes. I mean, that, this is what we should really all, you know, across the aisle, Republicans, Democrats, moderates, we should be coming together to regret this and to try to solve this. The answer is not bigger uh, government with actually more types of regulations and policies. We, we need simple things, things like, guess what? You can't get a mortgage unless you put down 20% on your house. I mean, let's just not be idiots about this. We need half a page of legislation to solve these types of problems instead of the social engineering that led us down the bad alley in the first place. So uh, the, the, the people who got hurt, you know, it's, it's, it's a horrible thing. I think everybody can agree on that. But the lessons learned going forward obviously are very different. We had Sarbanes-Oxley, which I know a lot of people in the business community um, criticize. Right. Uh, a lot of people would like a, a much tougher SEC. Um, yeah, it appears you're arguing that uh, that's not the answer. It's not the answer because it's, it never really solves the problem. I mean, if, if we had perfect knowledge and we had regulators who were actually as well-paid, smart, and had as much, uh, as much perfect information as the people who are creating exotic investment instruments, I might be sort of sympathetic to this. But the truth of the matter is uh, we'll never create a perfect mousetrap on these types of things. We need simpler regulations, number one. Number two is we got to take into account what the real problem is here. And I know it's going to sound crazy. We have a moral problem. We have a moral problem when we have investment houses that are saying that we can have 35 to 1 leverage. When we have people that are that are effectively creating Ponzi schemes and trying to stay in front of regulators – it, it, we we need an environment where people are able to call out immorality, whether it be in the whether it be in the private sector or be in the public sector. And what's happened over the past several decades, and this is a bipartisan conspiracy, effectively, is to say it's not okay to say when somebody's doing something morally wrong. Uh, that's the reason that ethics matters so much, and we need to be talking about this in in high schools. We need to be talking about it in college, and we need to have politicians, left-wing and right-wing, that have the courage to say, what you're doing is morally wrong. It's not that we need more laws so that we can circumscribe these things. We need to be able to have something that goes beyond laws and says a lot of practices are unacceptable in the the first place. Then we can talk about a regulatory regime that can be more effective. Of course, um, this is a part of any democratic society, right? You you, you can't legislate everything. And you're you're arguing for an increase in morality, which hopefully is taught in home and churches, and, and, and I know it's been ramped up in business schools uh, recently. Uh, but I think uh, people would argue that that's the reason we have laws, because you can't, you can't depend on that teaching. You can't depend on that person acting in a correct manner. Mm-hmm. And so the, you know, the safeguards have to be there in the public sector in the form of laws. Yeah. I mean, it, we've gotten to a point in our society where it's not okay to talk about morality. It's not okay to talk about right and wrong. And so it, it is the old joke that everything that's not prohibited is required after a certain point. You, it's, it's crazy. You know, the, the, the truth of the matter is that most things that aren't okay are, are actually legal. 
Uh, this idea that if something is not okay, you have to have a law against it, and if there's no law against it, you can't really condemn it. Who wants to live in a society like that? I don't. That's the reason that we should be more concerned with culture than we are with legal regimes. I understand that you need certain things to prohibit murder and drunk driving and all kinds of market failures that we have, but I also am equally sure that we it's completely healthy that we believe that it's immoral for people to commit adultery and it's morally wrong for people to to uh, to abuse their children even when it was technically legal these are the kinds of things that make our society livable and the fact that we've gotten away from these things so much flares up in these little examples I mean the financial crisis is a perfect example between 25 and 50 percent of the people who defaulted on their mortgages elected to default on their mortgages they didn't actually default because they couldn't pay for them now 70 percent of the applications for of subprime mortgages in 2007 had fraud on the applications this is a moral problem anybody who says that this is we just need better applications that have better screening for income and all this. You're chasing your tail at this point. I want to follow up with the home ownership. Isn't this part of the American dream? Isn't this why the government promoted home ownership and we have programs in support of it? You're saying you know, that was part of the impetus toward the housing bubble, but isn't this, shouldn't this be part of the American dream? I, don't, I think that it's uh, home ownership is great for some people, and I certainly don't think it's part of the American dream per se. The, the American dream is the idea that you can do better than your parents did with respect to earning your success however you see fit, and that your kids have more opportunity, more earned success than you do. The idea of upward progress with respect to all of the things that give you value in your lives and in our lives and, and give us value in, in creating better lives for other people. That, that's what we're really all about. But the idea of, of determining the American dream with respect to the rate of homeownership is a kind of crazy metric that can lead us in, in, a, in the wrong direction, I think self-evidently the wrong direction in retrospect. We're talking with Arthur Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, he gave a lecture recently on the Utah State University campus making a moral case for free enterprise. Uh, he was on campus for the Project on Liberty and American Constitutionalism at Utah State University. His book is, he's author of several books, the latest book is The Road to Freedom, How to Win the Fight for Free Enterprise. Uh, we're on tape in this part of the program. You can join us, however, at our, uh, by our email, upraxis at gmail.com or at our website, upr.org, back after a brief break. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by Science Unwrapped in the USU's College of Science tomorrow at 7 in the Eccles Science Learning Center is a free lecture by USU water scientist Nancy Messmer, Messner entitled Water is Life, Quality Matters. Information is at usu.edu slash unwrapped. Waste not. Water your plants deeply but less frequently to encourage deep root growth and drought tolerance. Another conservation tip, use a commercial car wash that recycles water. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams, and uh, interesting conversation with Arthur Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute and author of the new book, The Road to Freedom, How to Win the Fight for Free Enterprise. I spoke with uh, Dr. Brooks uh, a couple of weeks ago when he was on campus uh, for a talk 
for uh, the USU project on liberty and American constitutionalism. Uh, but you're welcome to comment, and we have several comments that are coming in. I want to get those in right now. You're welcome to respond to Arthur Brooks via our email, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or on our Facebook site. You can find us under Utah Public Radio. This is the question we put uh, on our Facebook site. Uh, Arthur Brooks in The Road to Freedom says American traditions of entrepreneurship, personal responsibility, and upward mobility have been weakened by an explosion in the size of government and a move toward distributing wealth rather than rewarding merit. And for enterprise requires a moral defense based on the ideals of earned success, equality of opportunity, charity, and basic fairness. And I asked you, did you agree? Erin Brewer responded on Facebook, She says, I think that government regulation which favors big business is the problem. Uh, That's Facebook. You can respond as she did on our Facebook site. A couple of comments have come in this morning from uh, Steve in Beaver Dam. Uh, The first responds to our discussion earlier in the program about higher education. This is what Steve says. I tuned in just in time to hear what sounded like nonsense about the student loan program. Perhaps I missed something, but I thought I heard your guest say that by entering in the student loan business, the government unbalances the marketplace. The truth of the matter is that the banks have not ever been in the student loan market in any significant way. It was always the government making loans. Banks, on the other hand, have been in the student loan servicing business, whereby the government is on the hook for the loan risk, and the banks take fat fees for administering and collecting. Now the government has made some smart moves in the direction of disintermediating the banks, who add no value anyway, and by administering the loans itself, saving taxpayers and students a lot of money. Needless to say, the banks are fighting this loss of government-subsidized no-risk business, and so organizations such as AEI are selling the false notion that banks make markets in uh, student loans. They don't, and really never did. That's Steve in Beaver Dam. By the way, another question we're throwing out to you, this is on our Facebook page. Uh, This is a point that Arthur Brooks makes. At least for some, the best path through higher education does not lie in the traditional classroom experience. We'd love your response to that particular question as well on Facebook at uh, Utah Public Radio or um, on uh, our email at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. And uh, Steve... Um, responded again to something else that Arthur Brooks uh, said. So this is another comment from Stephen Beaverdam. Uh, he says, that's bunk about the government role in the financial meltdown. Fannie and Freddie have very strict loan quality requirements for loans going into their portfolios. Greedy bankers had none at all and were fraudulently making lousy loans, which Fannie and Freddie would not take so uh, would not take. So instead, Wall Street put the bad loans into collateralized mortgage obligation securities and selling them to investors. Fannie and Freddie were very late to a corrupt game engineered and driven by the private interests of Wall Street. I worked on Wall Street for many years. I know a line of guff when I hear it. and Your audience is hearing it right now. So those are some... <laughs> Some tough words from uh, Steve and Beaver Dam. What is your response to what you're hearing from Arthur Brooks from the American Enterprise Institute, author of The Road to Freedom? Uh, here, uh, by the way, is uh, the last portion of uh, my recent conversation with Arthur Brooks. If you have a response, we'd love to hear from you. Upraxis at gmail.com. Upraxis at gmail.com. And... Uh, we uh, continue now with our, our discussion. You can also uh, discuss this more on Facebook, uh, Utah Public Radio. More now with uh, Arthur Brooks. We're back with Arthur Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute. 
He gave a public lecture recently for the Project on Liberty and American Constitutionalism at Utah State University on the Utah State University campus, making a moral case for free enterprise. He is author most recently of the book The Road to Freedom, How to Win the Fight for Free Enterprise. And we have another about 15 minutes left with Arthur Brooks. I want to talk about, and this is a a big part of your your book and arguments uh, against some of the arguments you make, and that is this idea of fairness, mm-hmm. equity. This is a big strain in in American uh, thought and dreams, and the and the current argument. <laughs> this is maybe one of the big fights between uh, conservatism and uh, and liberalism. Um, and uh, I wonder if you tell me a bit about this experiment you did. I was uh, watching this on the American Enterprise Institute uh, website that you did in your class. Uh, with regard to grades. Yeah. So it is true uh, that fairness is is hugely important to Americans. And one of the, the biggest mistakes that conservatives have made is, is ceding the entire argument to political liberals to say, yeah, we don't talk about fairness. We're, we're all about economic efficiency. And the result has been the only one in the current public debate at the national level who's talking seriously about fairness is President Obama, who says you know, the rich people need to make, they pay their fair share, those dreaded millionaires and billionaires. If they'd only pay their fair share, you know, it, we, we'd have a fairer economy. Now, the trouble with that is it has a particular definition of fairness. Fairness, which is to say some people have more, other people have less. There are needs, fairness dictates, that people who have more give to people who have less. Now, that's actually a definition of fair, a redistributive definition of fairness that's literally shared by about 11% of the population. 89% believe that true fairness means rewarding hard work and merit in an opportunity society. And so when you redistribute it, redistribution should not be just so that you have greater equality of, of, of resources. It should be redistribution for the sake of creating more opportunities so that people can earn their own success. That, that's, that's the notion. And, and we've gotten away from that kind of debate. We've gotten away from the 89% definition. Now, I, I experienced that in my classes when I was teaching at Syracuse. My, my graduate students are very bright, some of the best in the nation. Uh, we would talk about economic inequality, and ultimately, I mean, they were, they were sort of programmed by years at the university to say, it isn't right. You know, the rich are getting so much richer than the poor. Or sometimes they'd even make the mistake of thinking the poor are getting poorer, which is not accurate. But it is true that economic inequality is increasing, and that's, that's, um, that's axiomatically unfair is the notion. And so at one point in the semester, I would generally say, okay, about halfway through the class, you notice that, that uh, there's a big disparity in points and grade points. The disparity is not between kids who are smart and kids who aren't or kids who come in knowing a lot of economics and those who aren't. No. I mean, everybody's smart in these graduate programs. And by the middle of the class, they all kind of know the same amount of stuff. The difference is between people who are working hard and people who aren't. And there's a lot of reasons that people don't work hard. They're taking a big class load or they're just not very interested in the material or whatever. But the kids who are working hard are doing great and those who aren't, not so much. And I would say, you know, I've got an idea. Um, I'm going to take a quarter of the percentage points away from the kids who are doing really well, and I'm going to spread them equally among people in the bottom half of the class. Now, this was just outrageous. You know, they said, that's, that's, that's the dumbest thing they'd ever heard. And I'd say, see, you know, what do you think is going on in the economy? If you're really thinking that, that fairness means redistribution because some people have more than others, notwithstanding how much they work, notwithstanding what their interests are, notwithstanding what their labor force participation rates are, you're making the same kind of error. Generally speaking, you know, I know it's not exactly the same, but it was a point that was relatively well taken. And that, that's actually a point that's based on a huge body of experimental psychological literature using human subjects. And when you present people with cases where some people earn 
earn a particular resource, they don't think it's fair to have it taken away. And furthermore, they don't think it's fair to take something away from somebody who's earned it in, in simple in simple experiments. That's the kind of debate that we need in this country. So the kids that were getting bad grades, they also agreed that we shouldn't redistribute grades? Absolutely. Nobody yeah, wants to be – I mean, you think about it. We don't want to be the, the, the recipient of – unfair, coercive taking. I don't want something that belongs to somebody else. It's The only way that I'm going to be able to induce to take it is to say, well, it's ill-gotten in the first place. And this is exactly the kind of argument that we have in the United States typically. You say when you're redistributing resources from one group to another, you have to convince the group that's getting it that they somehow earned it or they somehow deserve it or it's redressed for some sort of a grievance. And you'll notice in public policy debates that that is always happening again and again and again, whether it be welfare or social security benefits that are way above and beyond what anybody put into the system or Medicare benefits that are three times what somebody paid into the system. You always have politicians saying, you earned this. Why? Because nobody wants to be unfair. Uh, By the same token, um, there are people who have problems in life. There are always going to be people who fall down as others rise. Uh, and maybe this will be generational. Um, how do we take care of the the, the poor? Poor are always going to be among us, right? Uh, how, do, how do we take care of the poor? Well, uh, Friedrich Hayek, probably the most iconic economist <clears throat> among conservatives, dealt with this problem, and, and I completely agree with his assessment. In a civilized society, you need a safety net. You need a government safety net. This is this is one of the huge errors on the political right is that they've never declared peace on the safety net. It's it's a crazy mistake to to say that the government shouldn't be taking care of poor people. The idea that we have you know people who can't afford adequate housing or medicine or food in the richest country in the world is it's barbaric. It's a, it's a it's a moral scandal as a matter of fact. Furthermore, here's something that's even more scandalous. We're talking about we cutting programs for poor people. Why? So that we can continue paying for welfare programs for middle class people and corporations and paying for government programs that basically perpetuate large corpulent government unionized workforces. Uh, school systems that are inefficient, not good for poor people, but we're, that are basically serving teachers and administrators. That's where the public money is going. It's welfare for the middle class and the rich, and we're marginalizing welfare for the poor. Basically, what we need, as far as I'm concerned, is we need a system that starts off with relief relief from indigence. It goes into human development so that people have equal opportunity above the level of indigence and at the top can facilitate spiritual enlightenment. This is the the, the most enlightened society thinks about these three levels and tries to find the boundaries between these things. And we're horrible at finding these boundaries right now. I think we should probably all no matter what our political beliefs are, come together to regret the fact that we can't tell the difference between welfare for the poor and welfare for the rich. That ultimately always hurts the poor. And in a political sense, I think whatever, be you for or against welfare, um, if it's for you, and this would include corporations, right, uh, then it's enlightened government policy. Right? Yeah. And if, if it's, you earned it somehow. <laughs> yeah. And if it's not for you, then, then maybe you're against it. Um, so I wonder about... Uh, it seems like uh, wages seem to be pretty stagnant uh, these days, and um, and it's, it seems like more and more people are falling out of that middle class. 
Well, the middle class has hollowed out, certainly, and this is something that typically happens in a recession, especially in a financial recession, which is the worst kind of recession that we find. Uh, the scarier problem, I mean, that's typical, and and history tells us that it will correct itself to a certain extent. The scarier problem are the people who are being permanently left behind. Um, and, you know, think about what this means. I mean, there's this uh, – a friend of mine, a senator, uh, was touring a steel plant in Russia with some Japanese steel executives. And the, the Russians asked their Japanese counterparts, you know, how far behind are we? Are we three years behind, five years behind? The Japanese executive said, you're forever behind. You know, what, the reason is because you're behind right now and you're falling farther behind because your rate of growth is lower. That's what's happening to people in the bottom 20% of the income distribution. And it's an incredible scandal, something that we have to deal with right now. And it's getting, it gets much worse in the financial crisis. This is not just about redistributing income. It's about a system that gives them systematically worse schools where we get in the way of their entrepreneurial opportunities, where we bureaucratically regulate them with these arcane systems that only rich people can figure out, where we have crony capitalism that only benefits people who are at the very top, who are, have good education, they're smart, they've got good connections, and they already have money. We, we have a society that's basically conspiring against people in the bottom 20%, and until we actually start taking care of their opportunities and treating them, these least of these, our brothers and sisters, with particular care and respect, uh, they're going to be forever behind. And that's, that will be a blot on, on the moral reputation of this generation. Finally, uh, how do we address that? How best to address that uh, inequality of opportunity? People can, can, can move up better out of the bottom 20%. Well, we, there are basically three things we need to be talking about much more seriously than we are. Number one, education. Education that serves kids, not grown-ups. I'm not trying to speak in code. I'm not trying to bash unions when I say this. But the truth of the matter is uh, when 52% of the general fund of California is going into public schools that are failing, we have a system that's a nightmare. And it's a nightmare especially for poor kids. So what are we going to do to innovate? What are we going to do to have an education economy that innovates as much as the private sector and is disproportionately pro-poor? So that the bottom 20% are not being left behind. This should be everybody's crusade, number one. Number two, you know, we have – we talk about entrepreneurship all the time. You know, I'm obsessed with it. I love it. I love entrepreneurs. The problem is that entrepreneurship is leaving poor people behind too. It's not that everybody has to start a business. People need to be able to design their own lives. We disproportionately can't do anything uh, if we don't have access to consultants and lawyers and accountants and you know people who can negotiate through a highly uncertain policy environment that's really punitive with respect to taxes and regulations. You want to start a landscaping business? Morally, you should need nothing, as far as I'm concerned, but a lawnmower. What do you need today? You need this license and that license, and you need to start off with a whole bunch of money. Who does that who does that marginalize? That marginalizes the striver at the bottom. People like I was when I was a kid at the bottom, you know, bottom quarter of the income distribution. Uh, and it's not right what we're doing. And the third thing is we don't have a serious conversation about culture. What's the main predictor of somebody being left behind? It's not having the kinds of values that people who strive to get a better education, who want to show up to work, who are taking care of their communities, who are thinking seriously about, about uh, maintaining intact families with real family integrity, until we basically say, you want a secret to a better, happier, successful life? I'll tell you what that is. It's thinking about your spiritual life. It's thinking about your family life. It's cultivating friendships in a strong community. And it's also working. It, until we're actually able to say this gives you a better, happier life to all people, not just our kids, other people's kids, until we're able to say these things openly and say, this is what a healthier culture is all about. We are, in fact, marginalizing the poor. 
We'll leave it there. We're out of time. We've been talking with Arthur Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute, who was on the Utah State University campus recently giving a lecture called Making a Moral Case for Free Enterprise. Uh, He was uh, on campus for the Project on Liberty and American Constitutionalism at Utah State University. His latest book is The Road to Freedom, How to Win the Fight for Free Enterprise. Arthur Brooks, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And we appreciate you listening to Access Utah. Uh, By the way, uh, if you have comments, uh, we certainly do a, a Appreciate those and encourage those. You could uh, still get those to me at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, and we'll get those on uh, for our audience on Monday. You can comment on our Facebook page as well, Utah Public Radio. For uh, producers uh, Danny Hayes, uh, Lindsay Snyder, Addison Pace, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today.